All right, well, good morning and happy new year to everyone who is watching and following along with this edition of the Hall Call interview series and podcast. I am Will Driscoll, the executive director here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And as always, I'm always happy to bring you a new episode of Hall Call. But before we get started and we jump right into it, I'd obviously like to thank our Hall Call and Hall of Fame sponsors. You see them over my shoulder, uh, the Beck Foundation, Priority Automotive, Davcon Inc., White Claw Hard Seltzer, Priority Auto, Sports Radio 94.1, and Santerra Health Plans. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do programs like Hall Call and everything else that we do here at the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Well, today's Hall Call is exciting because we get to dive into what is shaping up to be a really eventful year for professional golf. And to help us get some perspective on what is happening between the establishment, the PGA and the DP World Tour, and the disruptors, Live Golf, we are joined by 1996 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee Lanny Watkins. Watkins is a 21-time winner on the PGA Tour, including the 1977 PGA Championship. He's also a 2009 World Golf Hall of Fame inductee and stays close to the sport as the lead analyst for Golf Channel and NBC's, and NBC's Champions Tour coverage. And we're actually catching you prior to a trip out to Hawaii. So, Lanny, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Well, thank you, Will. It's great to be with you, and uh, always good to talk to someone from Virginia. I miss my days back there, and miss Virginia dearly. So uh, I relish every opportunity I get a chance to get back. So uh, that's always exciting. But yeah, we're setting, uh, getting the year started. PGA Tour Champion starts with the Mitsubishi Electric Classic, uh, which is our, basically our tournament of champions uh, on the Big Island of uh, Hawaii and near Kona. So uh, my wife and I leave uh, Friday heading over there for we're going a few days early. We're going to, you know, since we're going to be there, I'm on the air three days, but we we're forced to do about nine or 10 days in Hawaii. Not bad gig this time of year. Forced to do it. And you, you say you miss Virginia. I will tell you today we are going through about 40, 50, 60 mile an hour wind gusts and rain. So I would much rather be in your position heading out to the big island than being where we are right now. <laughs> yeah, it's always special. Well, Virginia gets that about once a year. I remember growing up, we always had one big snowfall that took us out of school for about a week. Seems like in Richmond growing up. So usually came usually came later, kind of February or first of March. Uh, yeah, so we're right in the thick of it right now. But, you know, let, let's talk before we jump into a lot of the things going on in professional golf. Let's kind of talk about what you what you're currently doing in your role. You mentioned I mentioned you work with the Champions Tour primarily. You know, talk about why that's an exciting tour right now. A lot of the guys that I'm 41. So a lot of the guys that I started growing up watching, they're now getting onto that tour. And so it's kind of fun to see that transition but also, we have an event here in Richmond at the Dominion Energy Charity Classic. Now, I know that they just recently announced that they'll be doing it for two more years before transitioning away. But kind of talk about that event, kind of talk about the Champions Tour in general, and why golf fans should be excited about the future of the Champions Tour. Well, the Champions Tour has been, you know, a sustainable force for quite a while. It's, uh, you know, most of the guys that you see week in, week out are Hall of Famers, major winners, and that's the reason it's Champions Tour. We have a few guys that you know, have the Stephen Alkers of the world that have worked their way up from basically oblivion to be, you know, something special out there. But uh, it's it's a limited tour, only 78 players per week. So we're not, you know, at the regular tour level of 156. But uh, it's it's a good, solid tour, fun to watch. Uh, I think the average player can probably relate to the distances we hit it. We're not ridiculous. We're still, you know, the 290, 300 range, but not in the 340 range. But you know, we've got names like Bernhard Langer, Ernie Els, Ratif Goosen, uh, you know, guys that have played very, very well. Fred Couples for a long time 
So uh, we'll be starting off with a lot of those guys in Hawaii and, and great to see. For me, uh, I'm technically working for PGA Tour Productions. Uh, yeah. PGA Tour Productions took over the uh, broadcasting of the PGA Tour Champions as well as the Corn Ferry Tour. So um, I'm going to do – I started cutting back a couple of years ago, and I'm only doing 12 this year. So I'm, I'm 74, so it's kind of getting to about that point. Uh, I'm very involved in golf course design. I've got about four or five projects going right now uh, as we start the year. So that, that's keeping me very busy. Uh, I like staying busy. I've been kind of exposed to retirement. That didn't go well. So uh, I'm, I'm back out. I'm going to stay as busy as I can. It's just, you know, ever since I've been 21 years old, I've been traveling close to 25, 30 weeks a year, you know, all those years. I, I sit home and my wife's like, what are you doing here? Get out. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, I just like being busy, but uh, plus after this year, I want to say they're transitioning almost all professional golf into a studio in Ponte Vedra. So if I was going to call the Hawaii tournament, I would fly to Jacksonville, Florida, sit in the studio in Ponte Vedra and call golf in Hawaii. Honestly, that does not appeal to me very much. So I like being on site, being with the guys, seeing the weather, seeing the quality of the course. But uh, as with everything these days, it's more of a cost cutting situation and uh, more controlled, but uh I've got a real good group I work with. My play-by-play guy is a guy named Bob Papa, who is the voice of New York Giants football for mm-hmm. the last 25 years or so. Bob's about an eight handicapper, good player, understands the game, uh, and a delight to work with. One of the best play-by-plays I've ever worked with, and I've worked with a lot. Uh, then also my guy on the ground is John Cook, who's won 11 times on the PGA Tour and 11 times on the Champions Tour. So we've got a really nice uh, little team. We enjoy the same beverages at night. So we're, we're good. We get, we get along really nice. You know, th- this is actually something that I hadn't planned on talking about, but just in listening to your answer, talking about how golf is kind of transitioning to the remote coverage. You know, my, my bro- I have a, a slight bro- uh, background in broadcasting, having covered local sports for some local affiliates, um, not in Virginia, but just in TV. And, and part of sports is being there, especially from the relationship between the people covering the event and the people participating in the event. Have you started to see those relationships kind of deteriorate because of the disconnect now between the remote coverage and the actual people that are participating in the event, the golfers, the caddies, the, the, uh, the, the event organizers themselves? Yeah, they're trying all kinds of things to save money. I mean, I'll give you a good, for example, uh, the Ryder Cup last year, the entire production crew did it from Connecticut. You know, Tommy Roy, who's the lead producer for NBC Sports, was not on site in Rome. And that has to be a first for Ryder Cup that he was actually in Connecticut. I yeah. talked to Blazinger, actually went to the course with Azinger about every day. And he was telling me, we talked shop a little bit here and there. You know, there was a three-second delay between him and the producer every time. So all during the telecast, he felt, he felt it was kind of discombobulated for them that, you know, trying to carry on a conversation. They've also done stuff like they've tried to do some of our productions like two different times now through bonded cellular and not satellite, you know, satellites almost instant, you know, relating to someone on the course, if you will. Uh, Papa and I did one remote from St. Augustine and Billy Ray Brown was on the ground in uh, Branson, Missouri. And it was a like three or four second delay each way. You can't have a conversation. When you're mm-hmm. supposed to be talking to your guy on the ground, 
you know, that just doesn't work. And that, that's been something that's been, you know, hard to follow. And, and I think there's still some kinks and a lot of things they're working out. Hopefully it will be decent going forward. I, I think they're going to miss the on-course, on-site uh, feeling that, that the players uh, have talking to somebody other than the interviewer or, you know, for the play-by-play guy and the analyst, I feel like they really need to be on-site. Well, yeah, and, and it provides just that perspective for the fan of somebody who's there and they they know the course, they've walked the course, they've potentially played the course. You know, it's knowing knowing exactly where a player needs to hit the hit their shot or target their shot is always something that as the, the fan sitting at home, we, we've always enjoyed. I mean, maybe there's some money from a potential partnership between the two entities that, that brings some broadcasting upgrades. Well, you never know, but it, it also the other thing that I really miss is going to the practice team before the round and talking yeah. to the players. How are you feeling? Got any new equipment changes? I mean, not, if you're not there talking to them, you're not really going to know. And so that's that's a big part of it. Plus, you have a sense of what the weather's doing, how much the wind's blowing. Is it a different direction than we've seen? And you can actually relate to the quality of shots that the players are going to play. And, you know, for me, doing Champs Tour – Either I've done all these courses for 10 plus years or I've played them when I was playing Champs Tour. So, I mean, in the case of Richmond, for example, I mean, that's I've won a number of times at at the Country Club Virginia James River course. So uh, for me, it's always a thrill to be back there. I won my first professional check there in 1971, the Virginia State Open, $1,000. Didn't go as far, uh, wouldn't go as far today as it did back then. (laughs) Yeah, that might get you a few of those beverages you were talking about, <laughs> but not as many as it used to. <laughs> you know, let, let's let's dive into professional golf right now, though. If you had to describe just the landscape of professional golf in one word right now, what would it be? Oh, I think frustrating in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, from for me, and I think a lot of the players my age, you know, we're trying to ascertain exactly what the cause of all this is. Are, are players today just money hungry and think of nothing else? Uh, they've got plenty of money to play for. I mean, even on the champs tour, we're playing for a minimum of $2 million a week. And in some cases, uh, a lot higher than that. The rugby tour has gone, you know, bananas with, you know, what they're playing for each week. And uh, I have never understood the attraction to live. I think a lot of us my age don't, other than to, to us, it's just a, a money grab. You know, it's I thought... You know, I'm not don't hear much of that kind of information coming from Fred Couples, but he had a, an, an interview here about a month ago that said, you know, talking about Ron when he went and was like, you know, 100 million wasn't enough, 200 million wasn't enough, he hates live, and 300 million wasn't enough, but 400 million, okay, I'll go. So, and don't, don't tell me that that's going to, you know, help your family or you're going to grow the game. That's it's a strict money grab, nothing else. I mean, they can you know, whitewash it all they want to with, with, you know, taking care of stuff. But, you know, if you're going to take care of your family and you're already worth 50 million, then you need a better financial advisor, you know? So, I mean, the guys like that that are already worth that kind of money now, maybe getting to a couple hundred millions, you know, life-changing. I wouldn't know. I've never been there. So, but, uh, you know, maybe you fly a bigger plane. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, that's, uh it's life's a lot simpler for those guys today in a lot of ways they all have teams my team was me and my wife that was it mm-hmm. you know and i just did everything together so that was the way it always was and uh sometimes i think they they need to take more ownership of what they're doing and may give a better product if they did 
is there a historical reference that that fans might <coughs> maybe go back to where there was a, another kind of disruptor that tried to get into the game but but was unsuccessful like back in the 70s 80s maybe even 90s or is this a, a first of its kind I think it's the first of its kind. I've never seen another corporation or somebody else involved from the outside that wanted to come in and, you know, start another tour. have not seen that at all. Everything that's been done has always been under the uh, umbrella of the PJ tour. Uh, I mean, the European tour has always had its tour. There's the Asian tour, the South African tour, South American tour. They all, you know, all these areas of, around the world have their own tours and those are all fine. And, and they've, you know, essentially those guys that play those tours, they're, they're using it as a stepping stone to get to either the DP World Tour, which would be the European Tour, or the PGA Tour. That's where everybody wants to be. Even the European Tour players would like to have access over here as much as possible. So uh, you know, this has always been where the biggest money has been. Uh, the quality of living is better. The travel simpler. You're not going through customs every time you get on a plane. I mean, it's just a, it's a simpler lifestyle. Hotels are better. Food's better. Everything is just way more consistent. The way the tournaments are run, the accommodations, uh, courtesy cars, everything about playing this tour is so, uh, it's just head and shoulders better than anything else in the world. And that's why this has always been the final destination for most people. Can the two entities coexist? We know we've heard news about the potential merger, but it's kind of seems like it's stalled. Now, we obviously don't know what's happening in these meetings, but the news came out and then there really hasn't been any news since then. Can can they coexist and do they need to coexist for the future of professional golf? I don't know that they need to coexist. And it's going to I think coexist is a strong word because I don't know that live golf and the PGA Tour will coexist that you that would be referenced that live players could play over here when they wanted mm -hmm. uh i don't think that's going to happen i don't think the pga tour nor the players on the pga tour should want guys that have taken a whole bunch of money and turned their back on this tour coming back over here and having full access uh i i just don't see that happening i see if contracts run out on live and people want to come back and play there's got to be some kind of penalty. You can't take 200 million, go away for two years, come back and have full access. I just don't see that happening. Um, you know, our merger talks are not with Live Golf; they're with the PIF, the mm -hmm. Saudi Investment Fund. So essentially, that is not Live. That's the entity that owns Live, if you will. Uh, I mean, I've seen everything that the PGA Tour commissioner would control Live at some point in time. I don't see how that works. Um, it's going to, I think that whole thing is, is going to be so interesting to follow and figure out what's going to happen. But uh, one of the things that probably, <clears throat> excuse me, has to come out of this is there probably needs to be a way back to the PGA tour for the live players. If they want to come back, uh, they've already gone through the process that they now have access to majors. I mean, John Rom, let's just take Rom for a second here. Okay. Uh, John Rahm won the Masters last year, so he's now in the Masters for life. You know, you have to. The one thing to understand is that all the major championships—the Masters, U.S. Open, the Open, the PGA—they are not. They they are co-sponsored or involved. They're on the PGA Tour schedule, but each one of them is their own entities. They set up the qualifying procedures for those tournaments. Uh, you know, most most notably, the top 50 in the world rankings gets in. 
that's been Liv's biggest argument because they get no ranking points because they're only a three-round tournament. They're doing a shotgun start. It's like your, you know, country club uh, member guest on the weekends, if you will. I mean, that's what they're playing in shorts, which I abhor. I can't stand watching professional golfers playing shorts. I mean, uh, particularly on Champs Tour when they do it in pro-ams. I, I, I just – Arnold Palmer and Ben Hogan are turning over in their graves watching <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I, you, you watch – the guys playing in shorts, you can't, t- can't tell who the pro is out there half the time. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little too old school for some of the stuff that's going on today. Um, but I, that's, that's kind of my take. I, I don't, I think that's where the, it, you know, and the tour apparently is talking to some other entities about, you know, they're changing the model where it will be a for-profit tour, which it never has been. Yeah. My biggest concern about that. What happens to all the money we raise for charities? That's, you know, that's been the biggest reason that these companies and these communities and all the volunteers get involved in tournaments is because we're raising money for charities in that area. And that's a, been a massive part of what the PJ Tour has been all about. So it's going to be uh, really interesting to see how everything shakes out. There's certainly a lot of changes. And, you know, one of the changes that we've seen recently is you talked about <laughs> how on the champions tour players your contemporaries there there's kind of a disconnect as to why but rory mcelroy has been one of the the staunchest opponents of live since the announcement a few years ago and he started to walk some of those comments back recently not asking you to name names or anything but can you give us a general sense of the pga tour membership and their general feeling right now as far as everything that's going on, are, are they just so laser focused on the season ahead of them and they just want to get out and play or, or are, is this something that's in the back of their minds as well? Well, I, I think it, it, you, I think there are enough changes on the PGA tour itself with this, you know, they've actually dialed it back, if you will, to not as many people being exempt and qualify for some of these major events. I did not understand why they why the tour needed to go to $20 million tournaments. Uh, it's a great thing for the players that they did. But uh, when, when you go from eight, nine, 10 million, and all of a sudden you're going to run it to 20, did you really need to double it? Why not go up a few million a year and always look like you're growing in, in, in my mind? And it's benefiting the top players. You know, when I came on tour, it was the top 60 was exempt. And if you made the cut, you were in the next week. And the Monday qualifying happened every week. And a lot of times there were 60, 70 spots on Mondays to qualify. Essentially, they're going back to that. I always thought that that number when it happened in the early 80s was too many when they went to 125. I didn't know why we needed more than double all the exempt players on tour, why we couldn't go from, say, 60 to 85, 90, you know, find a fit there and then move up gradually if you wanted to. Uh, the problem I had was it, it created a lot of – you had you ended up with the same players finishing 75 to 125 every single year. And I have nothing against those players. They're trying to make a living. But that's those players, you know, they're really not headliners. They're not the ones bringing in the fans, the TV contracts, everything else. You know, it's always going to be the top 50 that's going to have the, the mojo to make the tour work and go forward. I mean, that's like PGA T- Champions Tour, PGA Tour Champions. A lot of people say, why don't other players have access? Well, they're not going to sell tickets. They're not going to bring people in. You go to Richmond, you get to watch, essentially, you go watch the tournament in Richmond, you're watching probably 10 Hall of Famers play that week. 
-hmm. and, and a whole bunch of other guys that have won major championships and players championships and won 10, 12 times on tour. You, you know, there are very few Stephen Alpers that come out there and, and make it and make an impact. On the signature event subject, though, is there an event or two that you were happy to see kind of get that bump, like a, a historical event that you were always wondering, why isn't this one bigger? Is, is there one or two that you're happy to see that has gotten that extra extra cachet? I really can't say that there is. At least I haven't examined it really close. But, I mean, to me, the, you know, the tournaments that always, you know, held sway that were the bigger name tournaments. I mean, I, I wanted to win the tournament of champions. Now, to me, yeah. that was – and it was a smaller field back when I, I won it back-to-back -back years in 82 and 83. But uh, it was only like a 20-, 30-man field. Uh, so you had the best of the best from that past year playing. Uh, that was big. We had the World Series of Golf. We had uh, the Players' Championship. You know, outside the majors, those were the ones that really were the big names. Uh, the Western Open, which has really lost its identity as American Express, I think, has taken over the name of the Western Open. They still give a Western Open trophy for that, but it's it lost the Western Open. You know, the Western Open was a major before the Masters came into being. So that's the history of that. But uh, there are a number of other tournaments. <clears throat> I, I, I feel for some of the tournaments that have been out here for 40, 50 years that have given significant you know, monies to charity and they're kind of being overlooked. I mean, a good one right, right here in my backyard here in, in the Dallas area, I've got both the Byron Nelson and the Colonial and they're not in those $20 million range tournaments. And they are two of the tournaments that if you were a player, eight, 10 years ago, you would love to have won one of those tournaments. They were, they had history. They had tradition. Uh, you look at who the winners have been that, you know, you want to be part of that list. You want your name on the wall by the first tee at colonial as a, as a champion, you know? And, and so I think those, you know, those tournaments have been bypassed to an extent. And I think that's too bad. Yeah. It gets into a question of how long is this sustainable to be able to do this? I mean, it's, it's good for a fan's perspective because you get the deeper field, well, at least the top heavy fields, but sustainability, you wonder what, where some of those historic tournaments go. But one thing about sustainability that we know in golf is that the four majors take place every year. And this year you're looking at obviously <coughs> Augusta, but then you have Valhalla for the PGA Pinehurst number two for the U S open and Royal Troon for the open championship which of those venues sticks out to you? And is there one that, that catches your eye and one that really worked with your swing and, and the way you played? Well, I've played all those, uh, you know, I've, obviously Augusta is always a, special and it's Augusta. It's, it's, you know, a lot of fun. So um, I get to make my annual pilgrimage to Augusta national first week of March with uh, a bunch of Virginia boys. I go down there with a uh, fellow Virginia hall of fame member, Jimmy Laycock. Yep. Jim I had to end up with my buddy Steve Isaacs from Richmond and another guy that we grew up with in Richmond, Frank Easterly, who is our member that has been kind enough to take us now. For, so the four of us have been going for about 20 years. So that's a special trip. Yeah, I Jimmy's do. not shy about wearing his Augusta merch either. Oh, no, no. He goes in there <laughs> big time. He, he is a dude, man. He's, uh, he's, he's got a little bit too much football in him every now and then, but he's okay. You know, he is. He's a lot of fun. You know, we go back. We, we met each other when he was at William and Mary. We're fraternity brothers. Uh, he was Cap Sig at William and Mary. I was Cap Sig at Wake. So uh, we've got that in common. Isaacs has been one of my best friends since I've been 10 years old. So I, I always look forward to that trip. But 
Uh, the other other courses, uh, PGA going to Valhalla, it's been there and it's had good winners at Valhalla from Tiger Woods and on down. So there, there's some good players that have, have done well there. Um, the U.S. Open at Pinehurst, I mean, what an absolutely wonderful venue. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I love seeing Pinehurst in the rot rota rotation uh, on a regular basis. It's since Crenshaw and Coor re renovated the golf course and took it back to the way it was, oh, when I was in college, if you will, uh, it's really something special. And then Royal Troon, man, that's a, that's a beast. That's a, uh, They've had some interesting winners there, and uh, I, I finished close there in 73 when Weisskopf won, and um, Cal Quebecia won there. They've had some good winners, so it's uh, – uh, they're all those venues are very capable of producing great champions. I think it's going to be a good year for the majors. Yeah, you know, last year we had we had two of the heavyweights, Rom and uh, and Kepka, walk away with majors, but then you also had Wyndham Clark and Brian Harmon, so you wonder how that's going to shake out this year with these – with these four venues, um, we got a couple minutes left, and and I can't have a golf conversation with you without talking about the Ryder Cup. You're you're one of the the United States' great Ryder Cup participants, champions. You played in eight, you captained one, you had a 2011 and three record, 21 and a half points won. Uh, just really, it's a competition that really seemed to to kind of speak to you as a competitor uh, in the world of golf. When you when you were playing in Ryder Cups, what was your mentality going into that event? Because it's not your normal stroke play. It, it, match play is a different beast. But why were you so successful in the Ryder Cup format? I think one of the reasons I played a lot of match play as a kid growing up. And then when I played amateur golf, even in college, we played head-to-head -head matches. We didn't play uh, stroke play events as often as they do today. So, uh, I mean, I won the Richmond City Junior at match play. I won the Richmond City Amateur at match play. The Western Amateur at match play. Uh, so I played uh, Virginia Amateur. I won at match play. Mm -hmm. Beat my brother in the finals. Always have to throw that in. Uh, <laughs> beat Curtis. We'll, we'll in the, add that to your bio. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I beat Curtis in the semis and I beat my brother in the finals the year I won the Virginia Amateur. So that was <laughs> that was good stuff. But uh, yeah, I think I had a I had a match play background. So uh, I know that. In, in 79, for example, when we played at the Greenbrier, uh, I played with Larry Nelson as my partner. And Larry said, Lanny, I've never played match play. What do we do? I said, Larry, it's very simple. We get them one down, we get them two down, we get them three down, we get them four down. And when we're more up than we have holes left, we win. So that's all he, you just want <laughs> every hole you can and stay aggressive. And that was uh, the mentality we went with. And we had, a, you know, Larry and I are the last, American team, I think, uh, to win all four points the first two days. We won mm -hmm. morning, afternoon, the first day and the second. And then Larry beat Seve in singles in, uh, you know, the third day. So it was a good week for Larry Nelson and, and for me and the U.S. team. But I love being a part of it. Uh, I was over in Rome. It was um, – and, I, and I, it, it speaks to a little bit, I think, the problems the U.S. team has. And, and I don't – you know, I heard all this talk going into the Ryder Cup about, you know, we got to get the locker room right. Well, I'd rather have it right on the golf course than the locker room, personally. I'd rather, I think you're going to win more on the golf course than you are in the locker room. Uh, I did. I never understood where that was coming from. Um, maybe we get there and we find out. We had past captains that were at this Ryder Cup in Rome were Lee Trevino, Raymond Floyd, Dave Stockton, me, Curtis Strange, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Kite, Tom Lehman, Corey Pavin, Paul Azinger. 
we weren't allowed to go in the players' locker room, the players' team room at the hotel. We were, you know, we were there as guests of the PGA of America, but we weren't involved with the team at all. And our, our room that we sat and watched the matches on at, at the club was right next to the players' locker room. Not one player ever came in that room to say hi to us or anything. You know, I don't know what the disconnect is between today's generation and, you know, the guys, not even me. I'm talking Gravino and Raymond Floyd and, you know, that these guys don't even want to come say hello to them. I would have been all over it. I mean, we, you know, I've been at other Ryder Cups where we've been in the locker room and, you know, guys wanted to talk about how would you do this and how would you do that? You had, they had a big, uh, a big, you know, something that they could utilize to help with their mentality in the matches sitting right in that room and nobody came in to talk to us at all. It was, uh, you got to kind of wonder about what the mentality is with today's players somewhat. You know, it, it must just be all about money. We don't, that's all we see. We're, we're as a group, we're all kind of a little disappointed. Yeah, it, it's one of my favorite events to watch. <laughs> and I, I love the competitiveness. And I do like that it is competitive, but it's it's definitely swayed more in, in Europe's favor over the last two decades. And every two years, the U.S. will, you know, when the U.S. wins, it's they, they finally figured it out. And then two years later, it seems that they go right back to, to where they were and they're down 17, 17, 11. But uh <laughs> Fun well, event. Hopefully, the other thing, well, when you hear about what happened over there in Europe, was the European team room was all about their past and their history and their tradition. The whole room was decorated with Seve and Olafabo and, and Faldo and people like that that had been instrumental in the European team's success. And you know, and we're not even invited in the locker room. Come on, I mean, they had all their older players in there with them, you know, helping them out, giving them ideas. You know, how do you handle match play? What do you do? So to have that disconnect between today's generation and I'm not even, I'm not even saying me, I'm talking Curtis and, and Raymond Floyd and Lee Trevino. How can you not want to just at least come say hi to Lee Trevino? I mean, you know, legends. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a little mind boggling to me. Well, include yourself in that category because you are a legend. You know, you, you're 21 21- 20, 21 and a half points in the Ryder Cup, 21 PGA Tour wins. Uh, we're going to get you out of here with one more question. Just one one other topic I wanted to touch on. Tiger Woods, he's 48 years old now. Obviously, he's had the health issues over the last few years. Is there still any juice in that tank? Well, I think so. Uh, we'll just see how healthy he is. It's, it's going to you know completely depend on his health as to how successful he can be. I think just having him out there will be special. Mm-hmm. Uh it's 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 sad that he's had all the problems. Almost all his health issues have been, you know, self-inflicted one way or another, just accidents or or whatever. But uh, you'd like to see him out there. I think it's uh it's always great for our game when he's around. Just like uh, at the end of my career, it was great to have Nicholas out there playing and Palmer out there playing, Gravino playing. Uh, those guys came and played as long as they could. Hopefully, Tiger will do the same. Uh, also, I think I think the tour is lucky because I think he's going to continue to play because of his son Charlie is playing mm-hmm. and playing well. Uh, you know, Charlie's great to watch, but the the main thing for the players to understand and the public to understand, as long as Charlie's playing, Tiger's going to want to play with him. That's the only, one of the only reasons I play golf anymore, so I can play with my boys. Now they both beat the crap out of me and, and make fun of me, and you know, tell me, Dad, you need to go up past the ladies' tees and play because you hit it so short, but they, they wear me out. But, uh, you know, I love it. I, it's it's kind of what I live for. So 
uh, and I'm sure Tiger's finding that out playing with Charlie, the tour and the golfing public is going to be the beneficiary of that. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's, there's a good chance when he turns 50, he'll play some champs to events. He can then ride. Yeah, he may find, yeah, if, it, if he's, he's still going to want to be competitive and play. And that's probably the only place he'll, he may be able to do it. We'll see. Well, it's definitely one of the storylines that golf fans will be following in 2024. And and if you like drama, if you like storylines, if you if you like things that'll keep you interested, follow golf in 2024 because I think that that's going to be a, a good bet to keep uh, to keep you interested in sports. Well, Lanny, I know that you've got to get packed for a trip to Hawaii, so I do appreciate you spending some time with us today. And thanks for all your perspective on all the topics we talked about. Oh, it was my pleasure. Great being with you, and uh, all the best to the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, Hope to get up there soon. Take care. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you, Lanny. That was 1996 Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee Lanny Watkins. I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in or who will listen to this in podcast form. Uh, be sure to stay up to date on all things Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and the Hall Call interview series by following our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. You can also listen to the Hall Call podcast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Once again, I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and we'll see you next time.